0: You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Question for you What is the best sermon that you have ever heard? The best sermon that you ever heard? Surprise, I'm, I might not give it today. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll see. But I was thinking this week, this week, I've, I've been a Christian for 19 years, which means I worked out that I have listened to approximately 988 different sermons. That is one sermon a week for 52 weeks of the year for 19 years. Someone can check my maths, but I think that adds up to 988 sermons. Now, some of those sermons have been absolute crackers. Incredible, brilliant. Even now, I can bring them to mind. They've changed my mind, my heart, my life. Some of them have been truly horrendous, an absolute dog's breakfast. What even was going on? The majority of them, though, were fine. They are encouraging, they were from God's Word, they fed me, but I can't remember what happened in them, which seems a little bit concerning at times. If you're like me, you're trying to think back to even the sermon was preached three months ago. I, to be honest with you, I struggle to remember the contents of what was being spoken at when I became a Christian. The sermon 19 years ago, most sermons feed us, but they don't stick in our minds, which was concerning to me until I started thinking about the food that I ate. And I don't particularly remember what I ate for lunch two months ago either, but I'm fairly confident that it was vital for my growth and survival. But even if our experience of sermons varies, I dare say most of us have a set of categories that we use to evaluate whether a sermon was good or not so good, helpful or not helpful. Maybe it's that the sermon was short. Or maybe the sermon was long. Maybe it was that it was clear and simple to understand. Maybe it was that it it really tickled your mind. The the preacher was talking about the Greek and going in depth. Maybe it had a clear call to action. Maybe the preacher was passionate. Maybe it affected your hearts and emotions. Maybe the preacher had a beard and tattoos and used lots of hand motions. I don't know. (laughs) But I dare say if you were there, at the first sermon Peter gave, you'd remember it. The first sermon that Peter ever gave was an incredible sermon, a transformative sermon. That's the sermon we're going to take a look at this morning. Peter's sermon was a great sermon. It was a great sermon because of the time and the context in which he gave it. This was a pivotal moment in salvation history. This is the first sermon ever given post jesus ascending it's the sermon that launches the church it's the sermon at which the power of the holy spirit is displayed it's a sermon in which three thousand different individual people become christians for the very first time there are monday mornings when sam and i sit down and we wonder what on earth are we going to do there's a hundred and fifty people in our church we're packing out the pews how are we going to make space can you imagine if three thousand people came to church On a Sunday, what on earth would we do? It was a great sermon because of what was said. It was clear and simple. It spoke to the questions that people were asking. The context behind Peter's sermon is that Pentecost has just happened. The Holy Spirit has become upon his people and things have started to happen. People started to speak in different languages, language that they didn't wake up being able to speak so that God's power, God's miracles, God's wisdom would be able to be shared with everyone. Now, can you imagine all of a sudden we come to church and suddenly you're able to speak a different language? You're able to speak a language that you've never heard. You might imagine coming to church and hearing the gospel for the first time in your mother tongue, someone speaking to you the words of God. This would have been an incredible undertaking in people's response. People's response was varied. Some were asking questions, what's going on here? But the majority seemed to suggest That perhaps these people are drunk out of their mind. That's the only explanation that we can come up with for what is going on here. And it's that context that Peter speaks into, not are we drunk out of our minds. He's asking what is going on, what has happened here. And so he answers, what is going on here? He starts off. Quoting the book of Joel, No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Israel was looking forward, not just to the Messiah, but the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is telling them, that moment has arrived. God is moving with power. Pay attention. It's the Spirit of God that is causing this. And then he goes on. You that are Israelites... Listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power." I don't know how many of you have done much public speaking before, but it can be a confronting experience to speak in front of a hostile crowd. I've got flashbacks to public speaking in year nine, just all of my friends waiting for someone to make a mistake so we could tease them for the next six months. This was a far more hostile crowd than a year nine English class. Because Peter is speaking to the same people who 50 days earlier had handed Jesus over to the authorities to die. This is a hostile crowd. This is a crowd that is not receptive to what Peter is saying and yet Peter steps up to the plate and tells them as it is. He reminds them exactly who Jesus is. He says, you remember Jesus, don't you? This Jesus, you remember what he was like. You remember how he healed people and how he was kind to people, how he spoke the very words of God. You remember how everyone kept saying he was a prophet you remember, don't you, how he raised people from the dead? You remember, you remember that Jesus, right? You remember how you handed him over to the authorities? You remember how he died on the cross? You, you remember, right, how they put him in the tomb and then three days later that he wasn't in the tomb and uh, that, that 500 different people said that they saw you, you remember all this stuff, right? The first thing Peter does is remind them exactly who Jesus is. He doesn't just use it from their experience. He keeps quoting the Bible at them. Not the Bible that we know of, Old and New Testament, the Bible of the Old Testament, what all Israelites would have remembered and been able to call to mind. And so not only does he quote the prophet Joel to them, he starts quoting King David. He quotes Psalm 16. Let's see if the technology will work. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter goes on to say, Fellow Israelites, I say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he put one of his descendants on the throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. Peter is quoting Psalm 16, verses Uh, 8 to 11. He's quoting King David, his prophetic words. And what he is saying is King David was talking about someone of the line of David who would not experience the corruption of death, who would not experience the decay of flesh, who would not be abandoned to Hades. And because David Died Because David was buried, because David has passed, it cannot be talking about him. It has to be talking about someone else. Now, is there someone else in the line of David who experienced death and rose again? Is there someone in the line of David who defeated death? Is there someone in the line of David? Of course, it's Jesus. All of Scripture is pointing To Jesus. He's reminding them of what they already know and showing how Jesus fulfills it all. And then he says, This Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Not just that all those who believe, all of us are witnesses. This Jesus whom you know, this Jesus whom you saw, this Jesus whom was crucified, this Jesus who was raised from the dead. He's the Messiah and His resurrection changes everything. You know the thing that I always like about Christianity is that it puts its head on the chopping block. Every other major world religion bases most of its ideas on private revelations given to its leaders. Angels visiting them in caves sacred text being discovered, just out for a walk and having a revelation, Christianity never does that. It makes its, its claims publicly. It says that Jesus lived in history, that Jesus died in history, and that Jesus was raised from death to life in history. It puts its head on the chopping block. You know that Jesus, this Jesus whom you know. In fact... The most, most outrageous claim that Christianity makes is that the tomb of its leader is empty. Father Abraham, the founder of Judaism, is dead and buried in the grave. The Buddha is dead as of 438 BC. Muhammad, June 8. 632 A.D. is dead and buried. Jesus Christ lived, died and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the only one. He is the only one who has an empty tomb. You know what I think makes the best sermons though? The best sermons are when the preacher is preaching to themselves first not when they're communicating first to others, but when they're communicating and reminding themselves first. That's why I love that it's Peter's first sermon. Peter was always first in everything. First to step out onto the water. First to follow Jesus. First to, wash, uh, to be, have his feet washed by Jesus. First to draw the sword. In fact, he says in uh, the book of Luke, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I am all in, Lord. Whatever happens, whatever takes place, I am with you to the death. And yet scarcely 20 verses later, we know what happens to Peter. They seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. A servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him. And that man was also with Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else, on seeing him, said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then about an hour later still, another kept insisting, Surely this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, "Man, I do not know what you're talking about." And at that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord: how he had said to him, "Before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times." And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter knows what it feels like to be empty. You ever feel like you've let someone down? Perhaps even feel like you've let God down. Peter knew the depths of that despair. There's perhaps no person who has experienced the depths of despair that Peter felt denying his Lord and Savior. I can't help but feel that when he turns to the crowd and says, This Jesus whom you crucified, that he personally felt the weight of those words, that he personally felt the depth of his own involvement in the death of Jesus. But the question has to be, what changed? What changed for Peter to turn from a coward into a courageous man standing in front of a hostile crowd? It wasn't the death of Jesus. Peter runs away. Peter scarpers. He's hiding with the other disciples. It wasn't the death of Jesus that transformed him. It was the resurrection of Jesus. It was seeing the risen Lord. It was experiencing the forgiveness of the risen Lord on the shores of Galilee. It was experiencing the clarity of mind that comes from seeing his risen Lord and Savior. It was the freedom that comes from knowing not only are his sins forgiven, but the hope that he will be resurrected with his King forever. The resurrection changes everything. For Peter, this cowardly, anxious, insecure man transforms into a gospel beast prepared to preach in front of a hostile crowd of the resurrected Lord Jesus. The resurrection transformed Peter's life. What does the resurrection mean to you? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you? There are lots of ways to evaluate ourselves as Christians. How many times we go to church? How many times we've read our Bible? Have we been praying? Really, when it boils down to it, the most important question that we can ask ourselves is what do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? What do you feel about the resurrection of Jesus? Has the resurrection of Jesus changed your life? Does your life look differently because Jesus lived, died and rose again? What do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? You know what I love about Peter's sermon? It's very clear. Because as he preaches this, as he reminds them, as he, as he displays the transformation of, the crowd heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus demands a response. The only thing we can't do with the resurrection of Jesus is nothing. Deny him or accept him. Trust him or leave him. We have to do something with the resurrection. And I think if you talk to people around here, Peter would not be the only one whose life has been transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. So my encouragement to you this morning is twofold. One, if You are not someone who trusts in the resurrection of Jesus. Talk to someone who does, and find out what difference it has made in their lives, that Jesus has not only lived and died, but rose again. And if you are someone who has placed their trust and faith and hope in Jesus, God descending, living, dying, and rising again, and seated at the right hand of the Father, talk about it. Jesus didn't die just for you to be saved. He died to make a people for himself. He wants you to share, just like Peter shared. The crowd may be hostile. It might not be a kind reception. But the Holy Spirit is with you. And the resurrection has power. Let me pray for us now. God, we thank you this morning that the same resurrection power that transformed Peter's life can transform ours, that the same Holy Spirit that descended on Pentecost lives in us who have placed their trust in you, in your life, your death, your resurrection. God, we pray this morning that we who are discouraged might trust you anew. We pray that we who are wearied and burdened might place our burdens onto you. We pray that we who are struggling, just clinging on to a belief that Jesus actually literally rose from the dead, that you might remind us anew, that we might trust you anew. And God, we pray for those of us who know the depths of transformation in our own lives because Jesus lived and died and rose again. May we not keep quiet. May we not keep it to ourselves. Give us the kind of boldness that Peter had. The kind of boldness that turns a cowardly, insecure man to the kind that stands in front of crowds and declares what Jesus has done in his life. That That kind of courage doesn't come from us. That kind of courage comes from you. So Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Convince us, we ask.